This is a Shifting Perceptions podcast. Hello there, and welcome back to the Shifting Perceptions podcast, brought to you by our team, Cecilia, Terry, Richard, Jessica, Chavez, Shimega, Helena, and myself, Hanson. So today, we have a podcast guest who has contributed towards building the field of addictive behaviors and their neurobiology. She's focused on a couple populations, ranging from individuals with disordered use of alcohol, cocaine, and more recently, gambling, binge eating, and marijuana. And she also directs the Integrated Neuroscience of Motivation and Change Lab and teaches at McMaster University as well. So that being said, without further ado, Dr. Iris Belotis. Iris, it's a pleasure having you on today. Thanks so much for having me, Hanson. Yeah, thank you very much. So just want to start off with, so as you know, like our club, the main aim is pretty much to provide a platform where conversations like these around like stigma and harm reduction can happen. Um, we happen to specifically focus on opiates, but I know that your research focuses on a wider variety of addictions, whether they're substance-based or behavioral. And I guess where our, where our worlds kind of meet is that aspect exactly of addictions, which you've described in your work to be kind that it has a decision-making component to it, right? Where sometimes we genuinely want to make a change in our behavior, but it's hard to do so. So I'm wondering, are there any kind of big differences between how we typically understand addictions, maybe on a daily basis or the daily use of the word versus how it's used in maybe a research context? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. And it, and it taps into the idea of stigma and our ideas of, of what an addiction is, has, uh, has changed quite a bit over the past, uh, hundreds of years, as well as in the past decade as well, quite a bit. So, um, there used to be a lot more stigma attached to addictions, um, and so in that sense, I think our discussions around addictive disorders are getting better. We have much more, um, uh, a much better idea of, of what's going on uh, with an individual. And there's much more understanding. Many people come forward, for example, celebrities have come forward talking about uh, struggling with, you know, with drinking, with opiates, with, with other substances. Uh, and so that helps to reduce uh, the stigma. At the same time, there's a little bit uh, of a slippery slope there as well, where the the term colloquially now, I think, is sometimes applied too broadly. So people say, oh, I'm I'm addicted to my cell phone or I'm addicted to sugar or I'm addicted to this lip balm or this new song. Um, And and while in some ways it's it's good that stigma is reduced um we know that you can't uh be addicted to everything and this sort of clouds uh in many ways the the seriousness of uh of addictive disorders and so um one of the things that i see historically happening is this sort of push and pull between different models of addiction so you have traditionally a moral model of addiction where um, you know, if it, there's the thought that if you have enough self-control and willpower and you really, really want to, uh, you, you should be able to stop using that drug. You should be able to stop doing this. You can see that it's hurting people. It's hurting yourself. Uh, whereas now in the past few decades, we've ascribed to more of a medical 
model of, uh, of addictive disorders, which sees, for example, uh, addiction as a, as a disease from a disease model, or uh, even more recently as a, uh, a brain disease as well. So as you mentioned, starting to understand how uh, an addictive disorders plays out on neurocircuitry related to decision-making, how an addictive disorder can influence all the choices that you make throughout the day related to um, you know, how, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, uh, your decisions about your own health. So we see this profound link between uh, addictive disorders influencing uh, fundamental aspects of decision-making. I see. Yeah. So quite a bit to unpack there. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for the introduction. I guess a lot of times we don't, we don't realize there's so much going on in this world. Cause I suppose a lot of us, I guess we live without direct experience with it maybe, or maybe not even knowing someone, even though a lot of people do have conditions related to it, we might not be aware that people we know might even be affected yeah. by these conditions. Um, I know you mentioned there was kind of like a trade-off. So on the one hand, it's kind of, a good thing that it's not something that's as taboo or stigmatized anymore. But I guess on the, on the flip side of that, I guess is people getting a bit too comfortable with sticking the term onto anything that's kind of like that they find hard to control. So I guess with anything like that, it's, it comes down to, I, I suppose, a matter of how we define what addiction could be to kind of separate what it means uh, as far as the condition goes or something where we use it very informally. So um, what what kind of steps or criteria have we established throughout the literature to define what can be classified as an addiction? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it's it's very deep because I think overall we don't have a great concept of what uh, an addictive disorder is, and so sometimes that relates to some of the murkiness and the broad application of the term. The, uh, the APA or the American Psychiatric Association has developed a list of um, criteria that are based on, on research uh, that um, look at, now we term them as, as substance use disorders uh, with I think it's 10 to 11 criteria that uh, tap into facets of addictive disorders. So for example, taking a substance for um, much longer than you intend to or in larger amounts. So for example, you meant to have one or two beers, but you ended up drinking, you know, a, a two, four, uh, wanting to cut down, but not being able to spending a lot of time um, using the substance or getting over it. So for example, um, you know, not being able to focus at work the next day because you're too hungover, uh, cravings, so coming home and, and feeling, you know, this intense urge to, to use a substance. Uh, so things like that uh, are, are classical signs uh, of, of addictive disorders. And I think one of the changes that, um, that uh, in our approach is now looking at it on a, uh, using a dimensional approach. So uh, I think typically people used to think as, of addictive disorders as you either have one or, or, or you don't. Now we think about a continuum of these um, 
of these symptoms and signs where, for example, someone may have a mild substance use disorder where they just experience cravings and maybe they tend to use a little bit more than they mean to. So they could qualify for a mild substance use disorder versus someone that, you know, isn't able to go to work, isn't, uh, you know, neglects their health. Um, has severe withdrawal symptoms, all of these things would, would indicate a more severe substance use disorder. So I guess, I guess it goes with, as is the case with a lot of complex situations or um, even conditions, it's maybe not so clearly defined as black and white, like, oh, this person has an addiction, this person doesn't. Rather, it, it also is a kind of a gradation or like a spectrum of how, how severe it might be in terms of extent. I yeah, think- and I think, oh, oh sorry. sorry. Go on. Go, go <laughs> I Zoom thing, there's a bit of a delay, but yeah, go on. Um, I was going to say that, yeah, I, I always find it interesting that our, our history of how we view addictive disorders has changed so much. So I think traditionally there was much more of a focus on understanding the essence of a drug. So looking at the chemical components and that if we would clearly understand that, then we would solve addictive disorders. And we now know that that is not the case, even though we have quite a good understanding of, for example, how opiates work, how alcohol affects the brain. Um, uh, these features of, of uh, chemical components of the drugs hasn't helped explain how complex addictive disorders are. And so now we look at more aspects of loss of control related to a substance or a behavior and the adverse consequences. So, so a lot of the focus is now on, for example, constructs of impulsivity. So something that's initially fun that you uh, partake in that you often don't think about the negative consequences coming up from drinking too much, from smoking too much, etc. But slowly over time, this shifts to a, a more of a compulsive behavior. So, so uh, doing the same activities, not necessarily to achieve the same high, but just to reduce withdrawal symptoms, or just because you you feel these intense cravings. So it's this loss of control and and experiencing these adverse consequences in your life that's really the the focus of. Uh, of addictive disorders now and, and trying to understand what's what's underlying them. I see. So it's almost as if there's some symptoms that are kind of more severe. Like I know for some of them that might be more biochemically based, like for example, withdrawal, some substances themselves might be, it might follow the model that we think that the substance itself is addictive, but then we know there's also other things more related with psych- psychology or even uh, how we interact socially, I guess. I know one of the more severe symptoms would be things like loss of interest in your other hobbies or even uh, lying about the extent of use to close family members and friends. I know I, I, I suspect that uh, symptoms like those would be kind of indicative of, I, I guess, a further extent of, of the addictive. Yeah, and but they can start off very mildly. So for example, someone might not tell their their partner that they they were out gambling at the casino for five hours because it's just it's just going to lead to a fight with their partner and so rather than then start that um they'll just downplay it or they'll they'll avoid telling them that they were at the casino and they'll just say they were working late or something like that so it may start small but these are these are already these changes in social and occupational functioning that uh that hint at at problems yeah. I, and I think I just want to bring up the point that you raised, which I think is really interesting one, the fact that 
you know, we used to think it was a lot like it was intrinsically the nature of the substance, perhaps, rather than the psychology of the user. I think that reminds me of this, uh, this famous study. I, I came across it on YouTube for the first time, which, which I'd love to talk about later, the role of kind of modern technology and knowledge translation. But anyway, it was something like uh, Rat Park. And yeah. It was, yeah, the context was like, um, there were a lot of people um, addicted to morphine and other opiates around that time. It was kind of the time where they were realizing how big of an issue it was. But at the same time, after Viet the Vietnam War, there were a lot of vet veterans coming back and they, there was a widespread use of, you know, morphine to kind of dull the pain of, of war in Vietnam. So people were kind of concerned that, oh, no, we're having all of these um, people who kind of, I guess, at the time were stigmatized as druggies or addicts coming back to populate the streets of America. But then I guess what they found out was that those people... Uh, relatively speaking to what they were expecting, uh, had, a, had a much easier time reintegrating into society. So I'm wondering if you could, I guess, comment on what the study Rat Park was about, as well as some common misconceptions about what we think it was about versus kind of what really happened yeah. in the study, what the ideas of kind of a rat paradise and yeah. so on. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like I hear so much about Rat Park lately. And I'm not sure why. And I'll, I'll talk about it. You, you've brought up a lot of different things, but I'll talk about the the Rat Park study first, and and why I think it's it's coming up now too. So, the original Rat Park study was done, I think, over 30 or 40 years ago. Now it's it's quite old, and so I was surprised to 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 be asked about it several times in the past year or so. And originally, it was done showing that. Um, that rats that were housed in what could be considered more of a, a condo style living rather than in individual cages with no other rats or with just one other rat, um, they showed that they uh, were doing really well, that they didn't get addicted to drugs, um, that, uh, that it was sort of a, a rat paradise for them and they would have lots of toys for them, they had lots of social interactions, etc. And so I think people like um, Johan Hari and there's other people that I've heard talking about the rat park as a sort of cure for addiction and showing that the environment uh, really plays the, the biggest role in, um, in addiction and, and recovery as well. And the, the issue is, is that unfortunately, uh, it's not as simple as that. And anytime you hear uh, any sort of simple explanation for something as complicated as an addictive disorder, you know, uh, you, you can make the quick assumption that it's, it's probably uh, too simplistic and too reductionistic. So uh, before I get into the human side of things, just talking about rat park or um, studies using rats, rats are complicated beings as well. And when you house them together uh, in a condo style living, uh, they very quickly develop a hierarchy where you have some rats that are more dominant than others. And it, it's actually a very, it can be a very stressful environment. Yeah. So even though they have play toys and, uh, and rats do enjoy socially interacting with others, there's actually a lot of fighting that happens as well to the point that uh, animals could almost die from being beat up on and, and other things happening as well with the yeah. rats. It's can be incredibly violent and um, 
where you have multiple rats, for example, ganging up on one, to the point that some researchers have said, if you're going to analyze data from these sort of rat parks, you have to have an idea of where the rats are in the hierarchy and you have to uh, blood samples to look at cortisol levels because you're essentially in, in, in putting them into a, a stressful environment too. So someone who's at the very top can have a stressful role because they have to maintain that position. There's often two or three other strong rats scrambling to be dominant. And then you also have the um, you know, those that aren't dominant, this, the, the more submissive rats that uh, have high levels of cortisol and stress because they're, uh, they're constantly beat up on, so to, mm -hmm. so to speak, by, by the other rats. So, yeah. so, so anyways, that's my long-winded story to say that these, these rat parks are not idealized, uh, idealized housing conditions for the rats alone. Um, so I think that is a highly simplified um, description of one study 30 years ago that unfortunately is not replicated. But it does give the idea that environment does play a huge, huge role, uh, but it's certainly not the only role in addictive disorders. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the kind of fighting in the rat communities. So for any of our listeners wondering for context, basically what they did was they had rats in isolated cages where it was just them in an empty cage, and then they had the option to drink either clean water or water laced with drugs. And they found that uh, while initially most of the rats avoided the drug laced water, eventually over time, they all gravitated towards it until they became addicted and then eventually overdosed. But they found that this wasn't the case when they put it in, uh, when they had the rats in larger cages with toys and food and uh, other rats, uh, they found that a lot fewer of them uh, got hooked on the uh, drug-laced water, even though it was available. But I, I like how you mentioned it because the way the video or I guess pop culture portrays it is they see Rat Park as kind of like a mini rat paradise where, you know, rats have access to everything they like, whether it's other rats, uh, sexual in, uh, interactions, or, you know, just socially uh, being connected to other rats or uh, playing with toys. But, you know, we kind of tend to romanticize mother nature in our society Whereas we don't see kind of the the brutal side where they're kind of like chewing each other out and all that. Yeah. Kind of so it, it can be quite, as I said, these, these condos become quite stressful as well. And I think that is often uh, glossed over in the media and um, yeah, but you brought up some other points related to um, famous historical events, for example, uh, Vietnam vets coming back that had been using substances very heavily uh, while they were out in war and then coming back and not suffering any consequences. And I, I know that uh, that they were concerned that these individuals coming back would would have heavy substance use and bring problems back to the United States, et cetera. But that wasn't often the case. Uh, but the thing is, we know that this happens all the time where you have, for example, people that have undergo some sort of surgery, back surgery, and have to use heavy opiates after to mm -hmm. reduce the pain. Um, they, individuals don't necessarily become addicted to the opiates after. They may use them for several weeks or months to, to dull the pain from the surgery and then not develop any, any problems. And some individuals do. And so it's, again, there's... Uh, while the environment plays a, a, an important role, um, it isn't it isn't the only 
um, it isn't the only factor to consider. And with the Vietnam vets, it's unfortunate that many people coming back from uh, from war, while they don't necessarily even use substances while abroad, when they come home, they face so many problems with, for example, with PTSD and, and other stressors and trying to reintegrate into a life that uh, that is so different now that they've been at war that they often develop substance use problems after as well. And that's often not mentioned that, uh, for example, in the VA in the States, um, the substance use problems are a huge, are a huge issue when, when people come back. Yeah. So, but it's not necessarily that because they were, they were exposed to the drugs while on deployment. It might just be that when they came back, the overwhelming kind of challenges they face upon reintegration kind of turns them perhaps into this other method of escaping kind of the pain or at least in a temporary way yeah I think well the thing with rap park is it yeah like you mentioned it hasn't been replicated as well as the fact that it it kind of follows a unidimensional analysis of what's really going on inside the those uh giant rat condos um do you think-, and if you think about human society, it's, you know, much, much more complicated. We have many more layers to, to our society, how yeah. we move around. And I think if, if you just, if you give the simplistic story that, oh, if you have a great environment, addictive disorders won't happen. Um, that also self- sets up a false precedent because there are many people that come from, you know, great families, have everything, you know, provided to them, and they still develop problems with addictive disorders. So if, if that was the case, um, you know, that would sort of inoculate you against it. And, and the fact is, is it's an incredibly complicated interaction between your environment, you know, personal factors, immediate factors, genetics, uh, lots of things going on. So, so to ascribe it to just one thing is, uh, I think, does does damage on multiple levels. Yeah, I mean, even in that study with the rats in the cage, it's like we're we're a lot more complicated than rats, and our cage is, you know, seven billion people in it, and yeah. as we're more and more connected, you can only imagine how complex our interactions are, and all our social stressors that you know that we create often ourselves, and yeah, in our society. Yeah it's it's incredibly complicated yeah so i definitely think the hypothesis that because they were living you know happy lives in rat that cage i don't think that was the reason that they were avoiding the drugs do you think maybe even it's the case that as long as you have some meaningful challenge because you know the rats they're, they're not living an easy life necessarily but they're living something where they're heavily engaged because you know kind of their life and their well-being depends on it it's similar to what we're doing. We find that, I guess, with a lot of students or something, especially find that when you have that kind of direction in school or in a career, you know what you have to do. You're, you're aiming towards something and, you know, you know, there's consequences if you don't do what you have to do. And they find that a lot of people when they retire or when they, they've been unemployed, one of the key reasons that kind of little tank in kind of that sense of direction and what they should be engaging in that kind of forms a risk factor for them to, you know, fall into not just addiction, but any kind of wide variety of conditions. Yeah, for sure. I think having lots of activities, having diverse activities going on uh, is important because anytime you just direct yourself in one, yeah, in, in one way to one activity, it's yeah, it, uh, it can build problems. Yeah. If the rug gets pulled out from under you and, and you're heavily engaged in that one thing, 
So I guess maybe maybe the trick isn't even that necessarily you have to have such an easy life, but if you're deeply engaged in something. But I think definitely that study on its own isn't probably isn't enough to necessarily consolidate any any evidence and in, in a hypothesis like that. But I guess one of the good one of the plus sides is um, I saw that video a couple of years ago in high school, and at the time I, I just didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't really think about it because I wasn't personally affected by it or people that I was close to but it was kind of eye-opening because it presented the information in a very interesting way um, although it was a little bit uh, misinformed I think it one of the one of the plus sides if anything was to spread that awareness to people who otherwise might not be interested in reading like a scientific journal or article yeah. on studies like that I think the study too represents that shift that I talked about where we were initially always focused on the chemical components of drugs. And now you have a study showing, hey, actually the environment plays an even bigger role. That, that itself was an exaggeration, but you, you can sort of see the pendulum swinging. And so I think, I think it was novel and interesting in that sense. But, uh, but we now know, you know, all of these things play an important role, including many social factors and, and other things too. So it's, I think that's why it, in its time, it was, it was a very uh, interesting novel uh, mm. idea. So, so yeah, I, I like your analogy of the pendulum swinging. It might have overshot a bit, but at least it opened the door to something that we weren't aware of before when we used to think it was you know, kind of the intrinsic nature of the drug itself that caused the withdrawal and dependence. Yeah. But yeah, I was I was just thinking because, um, you know, for the general population, we're probably not as well informed on, you know, addictions, literature, and things on the psychology of or neuroscience of it. So I was thinking, I know members in your lab also engage in KT or knowledge translation of how do we make this information, this this wonderful world of research and addictions, how do we make that more accessible to, to general members of the population who might not have a background in science necessarily? I was hoping to get your thoughts on what you think modern technology like YouTube or Spotify play in kind of easing that process. I, th I think there is an important role that, that researchers have to play together with other people in the communi community to get, uh, to get neuroscience information out there and build up, so to speak, neuroscience literacy out there, because I think people have this uh, idea often of the brain that we know a lot more than we do, or we know a lot less than we do. And, and I think conveying uh, information is possible. I think the state of the neuroscience of addiction is at a point where it can be conveyed to the public in meaningful ways. There are many good um, KT approaches out there um, I have paired together with people in the environment in the in the greater Hamilton area, for example, uh, we have a project related to the neuroscience of gambling and developed a, a website called brainconnections.ca, where we put together both pamphlets and and a booklet related to brain mechanisms involved in gambling, using what we know from the literature and applying it to questions developed by um, people with gambling problems themselves. So for example, things like, why can't I stop thinking about gambling? Why, why do I have urges? Uh, will I just develop a, another addiction? 
Um, and so we tried to answer these questions using neuroscience. We even developed a, a short video as well to garner more interest in the topic as well. Yeah, I think there are different resources out there. And it's, it's important for researchers to, to, you know, just not stay in their ivory tower and, and look at their own experiments, but try and communicate findings. And when it, it's when you meet with, uh, with other people, with clinicians, with people with lived experience, that you start to have to apply the information and think about how this, what, what does this mean? What do these blobs on brains mean? Is there, is there anything in this that's helpful to an individual struggling with a substance use disorder? Yeah. So, so the think, role of PT is, is really important right now. Yeah. I think when, when we see those resources that, you know, are available, whether on campus or in clinics and stuff, we don't realize how much nitty-gritty research has been condensed into this, you say, three-page pamphlet that we're reading. So, and I think that a lot of people are kind of turned away from neuroscience because it, you know, the word itself sounds really complex. It's like, what do we know about the brain? But I think one, one of the greatest advancements is that we've started to penetrate into this otherwise like black box type of thing where we didn't know the mechanisms behind how people get addicted psychologically. I know that some, some of your studies include uh, computer tasks where we kind of parameterize and measure different aspects of how of people's cognition and how that could indicate differences between people who might have addictive conditions and not. How do we translate something from, say, not being able to, re- to inhibit a response on a key press on a computer, for example, and not being able to inhibit the urges to use a certain substance? Do those operate off the same systems? Yeah, that's a good question. So in psychology and psychiatry, we use many tasks that we think get at constructs which underlie addictive disorders. So for example, uh, response inhibition tasks or reward, um, excuse me, reward learning tasks or or things like that. Um, And And I think um, there are studies now looking at the ecological validity of these things. So for example, one of the most widely applied tasks in uh, in psychology is the Iowa gambling task. And this is a task that really mirrors some aspects of addictive disorders where people are often able to say what the correct response is, which decks they should play from, but they don't do that because some of the decks have rewarding schedules that are very high initially, but then you uh, end up losing money on these decks over the long term. So you should avoid them, but they can't resist the lure of the high paying decks. And this, we know, recruits certain areas of the brain involved in, in reward And it mirrors this facet between this knowing and doing. So you know what the right thing to do is, but you don't actually do it. Uh, And what we find is on these tasks, that performance on these tasks does correspond to certain aspects of life as well. So, for example, it relates to facets of abstinence. So how quickly someone relapses, their ability to maintain long-term employment, these are measures of, you know, of life, how you're doing in, uh, in life. And, and it's interesting that some tasks can actually tap into this in a very simple way, just by having someone choose between different decks of cards. And so this is a, a way that we can try and better understand what are the key aspects, what is the neurobiology underlying these 
these choices that people make and, and try and get a better idea of how this applies in, in people with uh, different addictive disorders. Yeah, I, I guess it might be counterintuitive initially to think that how we perform on a certain task in an isolated, very uh, confined computer task, almost resembling a game, like we might not see the relevance of that if you're able to resist pressing a button or getting some uh, financial or rewards point system in the game, how that translates over to being able to resist urges in real life. But I guess what we get from these is that the, even though the actions are different, the same circuits of neurons and systems in our brain are, are shared or are in common between those different tasks. So even if it's under a different context, we're using kind of the same the same neurocircuitry to engage in those decision-making processes, sometimes even without our conscious involvement, right? Exactly. Actually, the conscious part is, is key or the unconscious part. So one of the reasons a lot of these tasks are used is because they tap into implicit knowledge or people aren't explicitly aware of what the tasks are getting at. Because if you ask someone uh, to self-report certain things. We all have self-representational biases. And so, again, people will say what the right thing to do is, but they don't. Uh, but realistically, we see with these tasks that people often don't respond that way. And so that's why neuropsych tasks are particularly valuable to us, because they show people's behaviors when they're, it's not obvious often what the tasks are getting at. Whereas if you ask people just to, to report what the right answer is or what they should do, uh, they'll, they'll say something very different. And that's why you often see this dissociation between self-report measures and behavioral ones. And, and that's very important. Was that a psychoanalytic uh, theory or something that belief is, belief is sometimes what we act out rather than, than that which we think we believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And so that's why it's it's important that you often don't know exactly what the tasks with the neuropsych are tasks, it, I, I'm, I'm understanding that it's classified as objective data, because it's not something that study participants might be reporting themselves, which could be subject to their own subjective views or biases, which is really quite something to consider. I think we might take it for granted today that we have tools like that. But back in the day when they thought, you know, addictions was kind of like on a biochemical model, they might have not considered something as novel as, you know, having people tap buttons to test their psychology or uh, response inhibitions and stuff. It's, it's, it's oh. funny that these tasks that seem very simplistic sometimes, if you think about the history and the thought that has gone into all aspects of the task, it's, it's amazing for some of them. Um, so some things like, well, the Stroop, for example, is a, is a very old, a fairly old neuropsych task, but where you're asked to perform a behavior that's sort of in conflict with a natural behavior that you, you have. So you have to report the color of a word rather than read it. So if you see the word blue written in red ink, you have to say red, and this presents a natural conflict in our brains because we have to inhibit a naturally occurring behavior which for most of us is reading by the time you're an adult so you have to so what we're doing is we're measuring inhibitory control where you have to inhibit this prepotent response and instead do a new thing state the color of the word and it's incredibly difficult to do uh, and there's all sorts of facets of the task put in where for example you may have 
a bunch of words that are where the color and the, the word is congruent. And then finally, when it's incongruent, you can get a huge Stroop effect where someone, um, you know, really messes up and isn't able to inhibit. And we have quite a good idea of the neural circuitry underlying this. And it gives us really a good idea of cognitive control and what's involved with inhibiting a response. So even though it's just very simple, don't read the word, just say the color. It has this massive history and uh, underlying understanding of the neurobiology when it's, you know, you think, oh, I'm just reading the list of words. Yeah. I mean, it seems so simple in its concept, but just to imagine the, the years and decades of, you know, kind of uh, researchers trying to figure out what's going on, you know, bumping into good hypotheses, bumping into ones that turn out to be wrong, and just how much, uh, how much uh, time and trial went into figuring out these things that we, we are able to use today to better understand these conditions. Yeah. yeah. But I think it was all quite like a pretty big step in in terms of our understanding of a more holistic view of addictions, how it's also related to our own, you know, thought processes, something involved with the brain rather than maybe just the rest of our physiology, like uh, how yeah. it affects our heart rate or, uh, you know, excitement, uh, release of adrenaline and things like that. And I, I think, think it's this shift to looking at it um, in terms of how it impacts the brain is, is also very fundamental. It's, it's around 20 years old. I think it was in, uh, I'm not sure 1997 or, or around there where Al Leshner uh, made a, a researcher in, in, um, in alcohol uh, addiction made this statement that uh, that addiction is a brain disease and we should study it as such. And that sure. represents a, a deep shift in understanding not just simple neurotransmitter systems, but these complex cognitive constructs related to inhibitory control, related to uh, reward processing, all of these, you know, very complicated things that we already are capable of doing with the brain. We already have this complicated neurocircuitry and drugs play themselves out on this circuitry and hijack it to a certain extent. Uh, and this is how we can start to understand these aberrant behaviors that we see with addictive disorders. So, for example, you know, being uh, being more attuned to drug related cues than to other cues in your environment. So uh, we can start to understand how perceptual systems, memory systems, reward processing systems are affected by chronic substance use. Yeah, hmm. I, I, I can't even believe that's only been 20 years that we've been, you know, kind of. Yeah approaching it as a as, as a, a cognitive yeah cognitive aspects i guess now we look back at those campaigns where it's like this is your brain now this is your brain on drugs we see that as very archaic and like uh misunderstanding but little do we know it's actually kind of like the brainchild of like decades of trying to figure out what's really going on yeah so it's it's crazy how far it's come i guess yeah. even in terms of influencing the way we see it has also influenced the way kind of uh it's applied in, in, in a broader context of society, like uh, outlawing of certain drugs. We know that, you know, for example, in the States, they go off like, you know, schedule one, schedule two drugs based on how much benefit they can have and how dangerous they might be. And it's incredible that if we, you know, to imagine that if we saw it as kind of like a chemical property only, that something as useful as opiates, let's say, in treating chronic pain, could otherwise have been, you know, outlawed just because of its propensity to, yeah. to cause addiction. But now we kind of know it's not necessarily the opiate itself rather than 
like the user and how and the interaction with a myriad of, of things that are it's difficult to to predict so yeah but I think that yeah you've just brought up this interesting point again about history and how things are changing rapidly so within most of our lifetimes, if, if you're over 20, uh, we've had this new conceptualization of, uh, yeah, of understanding the brain's role in, um, in addictive disorders. We've undergone massive shifts, for example, with, with opiates and the types of opiates that are available, the amounts that are being used, uh, legalization of drugs like, you know, like cannabis, uh, shifting perceptions in terms of, you know, therapeutic uses, recreational use, et cetera. There's so much changing in our, in our view of, of drugs and, and addiction. It's, it is quite striking when you, when you think about it in just the past 20 years. Yeah. Especially in the attitudes department, it's like, you know, coming from a pretty conservative culture, it's like you kind of lump some, all these substances together. And I, I guess it's not a common uh, idea that things such as behaviors, like not even using an external substance, but just a behavior like a, a internet gaming disorder, which was recently recognized, or gambling, or uh, yeah. something so like that's that. A, that's an even more recent shift. The idea yeah. that you could be addicted to a behavior means that we're now taking the chemical components of substances out and saying, actually, it's not the the chemistry anymore. It's, it's something else. You can be addicted to gambling. You can be addicted to gaming. But now we have opened this door. And so can you be addicted to everything? These are, these are real discussions and important discussions that we have to have in understanding what, what is the, the concept of addiction. Yeah. Uh, where do we draw the line between, you know, am I addicted to biting my nails or is that just a bad habit that I have? Am I addicted to chocolate or is it just, you know, that I tend to overeat chocolate cake a little bit? Where, where do we draw these lines? Yeah. And I guess to take it even one step further, like really when our, when we're conscious and our consciousness itself is a lot of signaling with chemicals. So I, I suppose that, you know, the excitement you feel from gambling or the risk that of everything on the line, it's it's not the same mechanism as, for example, cocaine and uh, epinephrine and uh, norepinephrine and all that stuff. But it's kind of a similar concept where it is signaling, it is chemical signals in your brain, whether it's yeah. from a behavior or like a substance itself, right? Yeah, there's definitely still a yeah neurobiological component, neurotransmitter systems underlying all of these effects, but it's. But we're, yeah, I think with this shift, we're saying that it, the chemical component of drugs is not the main facet of addiction anymore, which again shows this shift to, to behaviors, to loss of control, to, to experiencing negative consequences associated with substance use or, or a behavior. Yeah, I'm so glad we kind of opened up this, this part of the discussion of addictions, because I know one of the things that struck me as really peculiar was that you know, a lot of the drugs we consider as like, especially dangerous, like, for example, in the States, uh, a lot of psychedelics are classified as schedule one, which is, you know, illegal under all circumstances without therapeutic use, because, you know, per se of uh, risks of dangerous behavior while on them and stuff. But yet you see things like, in uh, indigenous populations, or even cultures, for example, in the in the in South America, who use those substances, as part of kind of religious or uh, spiritual rites of passage kind of, but then they don't develop the same, uh, I guess, pathological addictions the way that we perceive it to be. Yeah. And some of that, 
there are even, you know, with cannabis too, there are many cultures that have used uh, mm-hmm. cannabis historically for hundreds, if not thousands of years as well. Uh, at the same time, I have to say that a lot of these drugs have changed. So when we talk about cannabis, what people are using nowadays is very different than uh, traditionally what was used, you know, even 10 years ago or 50 or, or several hundred years ago. So we talk about many of the cannabinoids, for example, uh, much more, whether there's, you know, what's the THC to CBD ratio. There's hundreds of cannabinoids in cannabis. We don't have any idea how they could all possibly interact. And we're just starting to scrape the surface on the complexity of that. But the potency of THC has increased significantly in the past 10 years. So these drugs are very different. The same thing, alcohol exists in the form of, for example, rotten berries on the ground. That's existed historically always, but we've, you know, discovered this method of distilling it and we can make, you know, potencies of 50, 80, 100 proof uh, that you can get intoxicated on right away. Uh, and the same thing with, you know, cocaine and, and opiates as well. We've gotten, we, we can get down to the essence and create something that is, you know, often very different than how it exists naturally, even though these things are all, you know, quote unquote natural. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible viewpoint. I actually never thought of it that way because, you know, on one side of the argument, you know, it's kind of a very, uh, I guess, traditional viewpoint that, you know, these drugs are inherently addictive. And on the other hand, we have the idea that just because ancient cultures used it it's somehow natural and it's natural but and you know most things risk. are natural if you yeah, yeah if you go by that definition but so, we've we've you know evolved it we've changed it into something quite different yeah i think uh being more open-minded has certainly led us to make a lot of advancements but at the same time like you said with the pendulum swinging we don't want to have it swing too far because you know the alcohol we drink today is nothing like the ones that like you know ancient like ancient Mesopotamians even had right or yeah you had two you know maybe two three percent alcohol in in some mixtures or sort of light beers that were developed and now you know we have gin we have vodka we have all sorts of stuff that's much much higher and and potent um and same thing with cannabis too people were smoking two three percent thc now you get at you know some of the average rates are 20 percent. so i you know i i always give the example imagine if you drank a pint of light beer you could probably drive home after that uh imagine if you drank a pint of uh, a vodka or something even stronger which is what we're talking about now with some of the cannabis compounds out there and then try driving home or i'm not obviously i'm not advocating but i'm just talking about the the differences on motor function so um yeah the effects are are completely different you have to consider them in a completely different light now yeah i think it's it's almost universal to drugs like i know we were talking about cannabis and uh and alcohol but i guess even opiates like back then with the opium and the poppy seed that's how people originally had it versus now all the different you know even pharmaceutical analogs and like just things that don't exist in nature that we've made ourselves that are much more potent it's kind of like it opens a, a bigger pathway to therapeutic use like for case of more severe pain but then i, I suppose it also co- it's also accompanied by a much higher risk then because of its increased potency. I want to pick up on, on something else you mentioned before, which I I think you mentioned, you know, this is your brain on drugs. Did you mention that, that 
There yeah, were, like the, the old like campaign they had against that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think that talks to a lot of public health campaigns and, you know, the just say no and uh, the campaigns and things like that to, to um, get attention to the, the negative aspects of drugs. And I, while uh, I, I think we can, we can say that, you know, that just say no has been relatively unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even have a poster up, I think on my, uh, on my desktop that says, congratulations, drugs for winning the war or something like that. Um, it, it, obviously it's just a joke, but I think sometimes some of these campaigns can, can backfire in different ways. So that campaign in particular, that where they showed an egg, being you know and they show it being cracked into a pan and you hear this like crackling and uh fizzing noises as it's fried up and scrambled and this is your brain on drugs and it was supposed to be a sort of scare tactic and scare campaign but what ends up happening is uh they had a question underneath that says any questions and it's again to to scare you into never never doing or, or trying any of this but the, the thing is, is that actually there are a lot of questions you should have about that. That analogy is is not great because um, the brain is very malleable. And I think a lot of the, the work that's being done now that's really just started up in the past 10 years is understanding recovery processes. We know uh, to a great extent how drugs work in the brain. We know brain changes that happen. What we don't know is what happens after you stop using, what happens one day after, what happens in the brain one month after, one year after, five, 10 years after. We know that people still experience cravings. They still experience different facets of, uh, of addiction, but the brain does recover. People do recover. And I think a lot of the work moving forwards has to relate to understanding how the brain changes again once you stop using a substance. Yeah, like those residual effects are so relevant now, especially, you know, with legalization of cannabis and its uh, integration with the workplace. You know, I I know certain places have uh, urine tests and we know, you know, cannabinoids can stay in your system for months even. But for urine tests, certainly at least two weeks. Uh, that it can that it can still be in there and whether or not that still affects your cognition is kind of like a big a big new area that we're we weren't so familiar with before and I guess also with the that's interesting there was a study that came out last year this is how recent things in this area are there was a study on driving showing regular cannabis users that were sober but that had, you know, still THC in their urine, uh, did have effects on driving. Um, and they, they look at, for example, deviations, your ability to stay in a lane, things like that. And so it's, so those studies are, are literally coming out month by month now, because as I said, many of the studies haven't been done at the potency and the use rates that people are currently using. So a lot of this is, is still coming out. It's almost like we're exploring new, new uh, levels of, of being intoxicated or high that, you know, people uh, even just 50 years ago would never have thought possible because, you know, you can only smoke so much. And if you're at 3% versus today, you know, upwards of like 25, 30% THC as we're breeding, especially with when industry and business starts getting integrated with, you know, growth culture, you know, it's, we're kind of seeing what happens with alcohol and all that when, you know, profits 
kind of get in the way. There's no use selling like a 3% nowadays because no one would want to buy it. So yeah. And then there's even now combinations. I think uh, cannabis companies are pairing with beer companies to, you know, have cannabis infused beer, uh, cannabis diffused foods and stuff. So you see this huge mixing of industries happening as well. So it's, and again, like understanding the interaction then of these drugs is, is a whole other thing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really crazy when you think about how, how these things are, are so relevant to us, like yeah. now more so than ever. And it's, it almost seems we live in a way where we think that scientific research is so detached from us like uh, that academia kind of has its own uh, bubble that your average person isn't really affected by but I guess when you really stop and think about it they're so deeply interconnected especially when you think about current events like you know recent legalization and where industries are moving and how like we're we're so interconnected with those things so I guess we're with that in mind, like, where do we go? Where do we go from now? I guess no one really has the answers, but what, what do you think the future holds in terms of research in this field, as well as kind of if it, if any knowledge translation comes from it or yeah. even any policy that's based on it? Well, as a researcher, I'll always say more, more research is necessary. <laughs> yeah. and, but I do think we, we've sort of just touched on um, where I think a lot of this is going is understanding interactive effects of different substances because we tend to often say oh i'm a cannabis researcher and i study opiates and i study alcohol but actually people use substances and mix them all the time and we don't look at we don't look at um uh substance use in that way systematically in the lab or at least not enough so for example we know that many people when they um, drink alcohol, they often now smoke cannabis as well, especially since it's legal. But there's very few studies looking at synergistic effects. We do know that there are some effects on driving. So someone may not be beyond the legal limits of alcohol in their blood, but once you pair it with, co- not sorry, not cocaine, uh, <laughs> with cannabis, that you you actually see and motor effects that are that you would see at a level of alcohol much higher um, if they were just using alcohol alone. So, um, so I think understanding uh, how people use substances together, interactive effects. I'm also very interested in in gambling, uh, as you know, and uh, and we know that people that uh, that gamble heavily also use uh, substances, but there's very, very few studies looking at the effects of alcohol, for example, in someone with, uh, with a, a gambling disorder or, or cannabis. And we know now with COVID and everyone sort of retreating more online, we see online gambling, we see substance use while online. Uh, and we have very little idea of how uh, how all of these things interact. So I think um, that's something we need to look at uh, in a more broad fashion, understand what how people are using substances and how this uh, yeah how this uh, affects things more broadly. Yeah, that's so true, especially with uh, a lot of substances we know kind of inhibit your decision making processes. I guess maybe making more inclined to make riskier choices. And how that would play out in a gambling situation could be 
could have very big effects on on the individual right yeah so it's it's amazing that while we know that these things happen together there's very few lab-based studies looking at systematically what happens um when you yeah have these interactions yeah yeah wow I guess, you know, we, we usually talk about, you know, opiates, that's kind of how our study, uh, our club started out, but it, it was great to have like a fresh perspective on just addictions in general, because I suppose it's hard to understand the situation on opiates without first getting a grasp of, you know, the broader context under which it falls, like uh, addicted addictions in general and the psychology and the impact on society, like you frequently mentioned. And that way we can kind of see the opiate crisis as one example, like one manifestation of this broader, broader concept rather than kind of a situation on its own. And like you said, like a lot of cross uh, usage of substances too, like uh, whether it's nicotine, alcohol, and cannabis, uh, a lot of times people don't just use one at a time. Yeah. yeah. Both legal and uh, illicit substance use is yeah often mixed and with other behaviors too. And we know this, but we don't often, as researchers, it's difficult to systematically study it that way. For sure. Yeah. Wow. This, I think this was really, really a great opportunity for us uh, on the, on the podcast, because we kind of covered the history of how, how we've shifted our uh, ideas and uh, perspectives on what exactly entails uh, an addiction as well as what current developments are going on, what that could even mean for the future, kind of directions for research. So we, I'm really glad we hit on a lot of cylinders today. Yeah. yeah wonderful. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fascinating and ever-changing topic. So thanks for your interest as always. Oh, no, not at all. Thank you so much for your time and uh, effort and coming onto our podcast today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, good luck with everything. Yeah, we appreciate it very much. All right, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, take care. Thank you.